All righty. Uh, we're going to say bye to our youth. Uh, youth, head on upstairs. Uh, thanks for being here. Great to see you guys. Uh, they're going to join our Pastor Jimmy in our youth uh, service right now. Man, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, all week I've been pretty excited to, to share with you uh, what God has uh, put on my heart. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking, to, we're looking in the book of Daniel, and we've seen the importance of standing up for God, like uh, even whether life is really negative or life is positive in the circumstance of our life, uh, in difficult times, but especially even last week, we're seeing in our successes. And this week, we're going to see the importance of standing up for God in the face of social pressure uh, and idol worship, which sounds kind of weird until we explain it for just a bit. So we're going to jump right into it. This comes from Daniel chapter 3. So King Nebuchadnezzar is back up here. King Nebuchadnezzar, he makes this image of gold. It's 90 feet high and it's 9 feet wide, so really tall and skinny. And he sets it up on this plain uh, in the area of Dura in the province of Babylon. And he summons all the provincial officials to come to this dedication of this image that he'd set up. And so uh, they all assemble and they stand before it. And so uh, this is, rather than like, if you think of like a big statue of a person, this is more like a stylized uh, obelisk, like a just tall, skinny sort of uh, statue. And uh, it's so large, it's safe to say it's probably not solid gold, but uh, it's a wood covered in gold. And this is really common in the in the Near East, uh, in the ancient world. That's how they would often do it, make something wood and cover it in gold. And so uh, this thing's standing in the middle. It's a 90-foot pillar. And they stand in tall, uh, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar invites everybody to come, more than invites, demands everybody comes. And uh, then uh, the herald, so these people gather, and then the herald proclaims this. Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of, the gold, uh, of gold that the king has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And so we have Nebuchadnezzar being Nebuchadnezzar again and uh, threatening people with their lives, this time with a blazing furnace. Um, he did like his creative killing methods, right? He chops people to bits or whatever, plucks out their eyes. And here he says, I have this furnace. Now, when he was building this thing, you've got to remember the furnace is already pre-built. So he has this statue uh, that he's built that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And then he also has next to it a furnace just in case. Like there's any disobedience, he can throw them in the furnace. It's not an accidental furnace. It's a built furnace. It wasn't there, you know, like, oh, look, here happens to be a furnace. He had to create this thing. And I don't know about Nebuchadnezzar. He might have spent more time developing the furnace than he did the statue, knowing him and his torture methods. And so he might have been like, hey, I hope someone disobeys. I don't know how, like, uh, uh, Smithers he is from, like, you know, I don't know if he's like that from, <laughs> from the Simpsons. But, but uh, he, he seriously has some problems that he's creating this worship statue, like a holy place, and then also there's a place to kill people right next to it, just in case you need that, of course, right? And so this command to worship the image was backed up by a powerful threat. Like, it wasn't an option. So therefore, as soon as uh, everyone heard the sound of the music, all the nations and the people of every language who were there, they fell down and they worshipped the image of gold that the king had set up. So the people obey. They bow down, total and immediate obedience, except, except for a couple. At this time, some astrologers, they come forward, so they do their bow down, they come up and they're like, hey, yo, King Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? Some of the guys come forward and they denounce a couple of the Jews. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, may the king live forever. Your majesty, you issued a decree that everyone was supposed to fall down when the music played and worship the image of gold. And, and if people didn't, then you were going to put them in the furnace that you happen to have next door here. 
But there were a couple of Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, perhaps some jealousy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods and they don't worship the image of gold that you have set up. So three men didn't bow down. But those guys, they didn't make a big deal of it. They didn't lodge a formal complaint against the government. Their actions weren't publicized, nor were they hidden. They went really unnoticed until some dudes decided to rat them out and call them out in front of the king. This ends up making the king sort of mad. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons them. (coughs) So these men were brought before Nebuchadnezzar, who said to them, Is that true? that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the uh, music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I've made, very good. But if you don't worship it, you're going to be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So Nebuchadnezzar asks if this is a true sort of thing. Perhaps he knows about the dudes that, you know, Rulers aren't stupid, so he knows these guys are maybe ratty or trying to, you know, come up in the structure or whatever. And, and, and so he, he says, like, is this really true? Or are they trying to frame you? And, uh, um, and so he asks them about it. So not only did they have to make an initial stand. So you've got to imagine this. This was them. Like, everybody bowed down, and they didn't. And they, they might have been by the back, you know, kind of just do it, and then nobody noticed, and then apparently someone did. So not only did they have to make their initial stand, they had to decide, like, I'm going to disobey the king when everybody else doesn't. But then they have to make a second, and I would say perhaps a more intimidating stand for Jesus, for, for God. They had to go before the very man who held their lives in his hand. Like, it's one thing to be all in the crowd, right? And then everyone does something and you don't do it. But when the king of the land who, who builds furnaces and chops people to bits calls you up and he says, are you going to bow down or not? And then he's talking to you personally. That's quite intimidating. And they have to decide if they're going to make a stand here. They have this second opportunity. And I would say that this would even be more difficult. Can you imagine the pressure? Like all the people are now watching, right? The band is waiting because he said when the band plays, the king is fuming. Those haters are on the side hating. And, and oh, what are you going to do? Last week, I mentioned uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. But I don't even think he's a very faithful polytheist because at the end of this sentence, he says, like, what God could be able to deliver you from my hand? So he places himself above even the gods. And so he's not even a very faithful polytheist. And they've got to decide what they're going to do. Nebuchadnezzar would not allow them the freedom to choose God, to follow God. They must worship an idol. They don't have a choice. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they reply to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And I think their statement is remarkable for several reasons. But one of the reasons it's remarkable is for what it does not have. It does not have any hint of excuse. Now, as I was thinking through this passage, I I came upon uh, Pastor David uh, Guzik, who writes similarly, and so some of the ideas are paralleling his, and I appreciate his work on it. So in a time of testing, like it's 
it's really easy to think of like a thousand excuses that will justify compromise. We're just really, we as human beings are really good at justifying why we compromise a little bit, why we don't totally fully follow God. The, the, the guys here, the three guys, they might have said, like, there's nothing to gain by resisting. Wouldn't we do more good by living than we would by dying? Like, it's easy to say that, right? Like, we really, we, we should just live and then we'll be able to do more good things. But in reality, we all die. So why not die making a stand for God? They might have said, like, look, we're in this different place. We're not, we're not among our people, you know. Went in Babylon, act like the Babylonians, like, you know, like went in Vegas, what stays in Vegas, whatever. Yet the, these men realized God has unlimited jurisdiction. They might have reasoned in their own minds, like, look, we could lose our jobs or our standard of living, And often when God blesses us, because in the last chapter we saw that God blessed them, they had like this position and they had this place of security a little bit. And often when God blesses us as humans, we make the blessing an idol and we compromise God to keep the very thing that he gave us. So God gives us stuff and then then we ignore God because we want to hold on to the stuff that he gave us. We turn his blessings into an idol. And that's pretty common and they could have said that. They could have said, like, okay, it's only this once, and it's not for a really long time, right? Like, what's 10 minutes? We're just, you know, we're just for the king. Like, it's stupid to throw our lives away for this, this one-time stupid thing. Let's just, it's just so small. But these men realized that 10 minutes could change their entire lives, and 10 minutes can chart the course of an eternity. They might have said, like, look, after all, we're not, we're not actually being called to renounce God, right? So we can still have God, and then we're just being called to bow down. And so they, they didn't like, equivocate on the terms like this. So, so maybe we could have God, and then we're just bowing down to respect the king or to, to honor the music or something like that. They didn't sort of make this kind of idea, this kind of compromise. Excuses like this are common, but they prove the principle that anything will serve as an excuse when our heart has already decided to compromise. See, if our heart has decided to compromise ahead of time, then there's a million excuses that are available, and they'll all sound fine. Maybe they might have argued like everybody else is doing it. It's it's a cultural thing. It's just what we do. But these gentlemen have cultivated personalities that are willing to stand, even if it's not popular, or even if they have to stand alone. They could have said that this is more than could be expected of us. Look, like, like how could God even ask this of us? We already try to serve him the best that we can. God will understand if we just, just bow down this once. And it is true that God understands our struggle with sin. And, and this is why he loves the sinner, but it's also why he made provision at the cross for freedom from the penalty of sin, from the power, and also the presence of sin in our lives. Knowing that God understands should be a spur to obedience, not a license to sin or to compromise. Look, these guys, they don't lie. They don't equivocate. They don't make excuses. They don't defend themselves. They don't attempt to rationalize or convince. Yes, they were absolutely guilty. They raised their hand. And they were unwilling to bow down no matter the consequences. Why? Because of God. Remember, we've heard, in the difficult circumstances, in the successes of life, and here in the pressures of life, we've got to say it's all about God. 
And this isn't just storybook stuff. Like, this, was, this is a real historical narrative. And this was real for them. And it's real for, for us. Like, idol worship, like, we sort of say, oh, idol worship doesn't even make sense nowadays. But idol worship is no joke. In America, like, it's highly unlikely that you're going to lose your life if you stand up for God. It's, it's extremely unlikely. It's not very common. It would happen, maybe it, it would make the news, and it would be one every, what, 10 years or something. Someone at, you know, a school shooting maybe. Uh, bless their, their families, and that sort of stuff. Like, it happens very rarely and very occasionally. But you're probably not going to lose your life if you stand up for God here in America. But I will tell you, 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 will, you will probably and, and even likely lose something even more precious than your life. So if I asked you, that, let me ask you a question. If I asked our Christians in here, would you die for God? Most of us, I think as believers, we'd say yes. Like, I'd die for God, Right? But if I asked you, like right now, seriously, would you quit your job, move to Afghanistan, and become a missionary on Monday? Most of us would say no. Right? But, and, but you say, well, isn't death a bigger demonstration? Like, I'd be willing to die for God. Isn't that a bigger demonstration of my commitment to God than becoming a missionary? And I would say that it depends on your idol. If living is your idol, then yes. But if money or comfort is our idol, then no. See, I think for most of us, living isn't our idol. We all realize we're going to die. We, that, that's not something that we're trying to hold on to. Now, now, sometimes in different places, different situations, different churches, it's different. But in our church, I don't think that living is our idol. I, think, I don't think marriage is our idol. I don't think it's not the number one spot for us. I don't think statues are our idol. Like, I don't think a lot of you have statues. You go into your house and bow down to a statue. But I do think that it's our money that's our idol. But I think even more specifically, because I don't think it's money. I think that's the wrong term. I've said that before, but I don't think that's quite right. And I was thinking and praying about it all week, but I don't think it's money itself, because I don't think our church worships money, and I don't think our people desire to worship money. But I think what we do desire is comfort. See, I think our idol is comfort. I used to think it was, it was money, but I don't think that's true. I think it's comfort. I, I really do. I, I think that here in America, in our church, here in Irvine, our idol is comfort. And if you'll just sit with that for just a second. Jesus says this, and it ought to obliterate any idols or idol worship. And it will obliterate the idea that we should live for our own comfort. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple... They've got to do three things. They've got to deny themselves. They have to take up their cross, and they have to follow me. So those are the three things Jesus says that we have to do if we want to be his disciple. I think that those are in order from hardest to easiest. See, once you've denied yourself, then once you've said, said uh, it's not going to be about me, then taking your, up your cross or going to the death penalty is, is easier. And then once you've, will, once you've given up your own desires for comfort in life, and once you've given up your own willingness to be alive, then following Jesus is super easy. It's actually a joy, because those other two are, like, difficult. And then following Jesus is this joy part. So I think that those are put in order when Jesus says them from hardest to easiest. To deny yourself is first because it's the most difficult. Denying ourselves means that our own desires, our own wants, and our own comforts are no longer our number one concern. But I think that that's, that's almost certainly our concern, right? Our comforts. Why don't I go on short-term missions? 
Because it's incredibly uncomfortable. Why, why, don't I, why don't I give more than 10% in generous giving? Because that would make my finances uncomfortable a little bit. Why don't I, why don't I uh, go to these small groups? Because I don't really like the people that much maybe, right? It would make me uncomfortable to be in that kind of situation. Why don't I, whatever the thing is, I, I think it's comfort. And I think that that's become possibility that that's an idol. How many of us can claim right now that, that we are disciples as Jesus phrased it out? Disciples are people who said, I'm willing to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. How many of us can make that claim right now about our lives? Now, I'm not trying to call anyone out, but, but I'm, I'm just trying to simply share what Jesus says. And I would say that our, this, this for us is our biggest spiritual barrier as a church. That, that we haven't decided, yes, Jesus, I'm going to take you seriously at your claim about idol worship and comfort, and I'm going to be willing to deny myself. That means don't do the things that I want to do. I want to do the things of God, and I'm even willing to give up everything for it, and then I get to follow you, Jesus. I think this is a big barrier for us. But every single one of us, we need to get to the place where we can say to God, you can have everything. You can have all of me. I'll do anything you want me to do. We've got to get to that place because that's what a disciple looks like. When the Bible tells, tells all of the apostles to make disciples, go therefore and make disciples, baptize in the name of, of, of Jesus and, and teaching them all that I command you. This is what he's talking about. A disciple is someone who's decided that their life is not worth anything compared to what God has for them, and they're willing to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And if you're not there, it's okay. But I do want you to know this. As your shepherd, as your pastor, I will not let you stay there. I am going to come beside each and every one of you, if you'll let me, and we will together get to the place where we can say, God, I am, I am a disciple. I am following you. And I can 100% in my heart of hearts honestly say that I don't have an idol before you, God, but I've decided to deny myself, take up the cross and follow you. That's where I want us to each get because your soul is the most important part of your life. And that's the part I care about more than anything else. I want us to be able to get to this place as a church. So back to Daniel and the, and the text here. Um, these guys say one of my favorite things in all of the Bible. Um, I like, I L-O-V, I love what they said. This is like quotable love, their response to the king when he says bow down. And I love, like, it, it's a bit edgy. I don't know if it was the, the most gentle response that they could have had, but, but I kind of liked it. Because they said like, look, we're not bowing down to your statue. We think God can save us. We think God will save us. But even if he doesn't, O king, we want you to know this, we will not worship you or your idols. Like, we will stand for God. And when I read this, that's like so fire that they would say this to this guy, right? They're like, oh, yeah. Like, I'm reading it, and and I've read this hundreds of times now. I get that, like, Holy Spirit chills moment where I'm like, man, these guys said, like, no matter what happens, we're not bowing down. We've decided to stand for God. They absolutely know that God can save them, but they haven't heard his voice on, on the matter, and so they don't know if he will save him them. So they say, either way, king, we're, we're going to stand with God. We see that a person can't have it both ways. 
You can't bow down to idols and stand up for God. They are incompatible. The Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like this. He's furious with them. His attitude toward him changes, and he orders the furnace heated seven times hotter. Now, this is an uh, idiom, an idiomatic expression. Seven times, they don't have a temperature gauge, but whenever you do something seven times something in the Bible or in ancient Near East, Near East literature, you're talking about doing it to the maximum. We would say like a million times, right? Like, dude, that's like a million times better. We don't actually mean a million times. We mean like, like the best, right? And so seven times is their million times. So he says, heat that thing seven times. Like, put it to the maximum than usual. And he commands some of the strongest soldier in an army to tie him up and throw him into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, like Chadwick, Meshach, and Abednego, their trousers, turbans, clothes, they're bound up. They get thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took him up. And so they, they take him, it's so urgent, they throw him in there, but the fire's leaping over the edge and it's like, ah, they get killed by the fire. And then these three guys drop into the fire and King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet as they fall down. He sees them in the center of this furnace in amazement. There's a window to watch the people burn up. That's not sick, right? So he's created. Remember, he built the thing. He's like, oh, you'll drop them in from the top, and then you can see them burning. Ah! And there'll be like a, a window thing we can watch them. Yeah, problems. Anyway, so he, he knows. So there in there, uh, he jumps up. He's like, dude, didn't we throw three people in there? Did anyone else fall in or something? They're like, no, yeah, we threw three people in. And weren't they tied up when we threw them in? They're like, yeah, certainly. And he says, look. There's four guys walking around, and they're, they're walking around. They're unbound. They're unharmed. They're, they're in the fire. My, my furnace walking around. They're supposed to kill him. And the fourth, he looks like the son of gods. Like, who's that? That's like a, ah. What does that look like? I don't know. There's three dudes and like a, ah. I don't know what it is, but, but he's like, dude, it's like the son of gods. Is that Jesus in there? Some people think it is. That could be appearing of Jesus before he actually ever took human form. This would be called a Christophany. Or is it like an angel of the Lord? And as your pastor, I don't know. I don't know who's in there. But it's okay. Someone good, helpful. Nebuchadnezzar approaches the opening. (laughs) And he's like, yo, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. He knew who they were. He acted like he didn't know earlier. Come out of there. Come here. He knows who they are. And he knows whose they are. So he knew exactly why they didn't bow down. He didn't have to ask. He probably knew he didn't have to ask twice. And that brings us to this principle that people are always watching. People know that you're a servant of the Most High God. They do. And they're going to formulate what they think about God, Jesus, and Christianity based on watching you. Whether you like it or not. People know you go to church. <laughs> All your people at work do. All your people at your friends at school do. People know that you're a Christian. Almost assuredly. And so they're watching. Not in a creepy way, but, but they're watching. People are wanting to know what those Christians are like. And they're going to make judgments based on how you act. They're not even going to read the Bible. They're going to read you. They're not going to listen to my sermon. They're going to listen to your voice in the office. Your interaction in your meetings. Your style. Your tone. That's going to be Christianity to them. So anyway, the, uh, the guys come out of the fire, and everyone crowds around them, and they, they see that the fire hadn't harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed, and their robes were not scorched, and there was no sm- smell of fire on them. So that's like they're all good. 
But how powerful is God? Like their, their faith is nice and all, but dang, like God's legit. Like God, he, there's not even the smell of fire on them. I can't cook kalbi. Like I cook kalbi in the backyard and then for days I smell like meat, right? Like yeah, I wash my hands. I still smell like, like barbecue. Even after, have you ever been to the Korean barbecue after that thing? It's like tomorrow, the next day, like on Wednesday, people are like, oh, you went to Korean barbecue on Sunday. You're like, yeah, yeah we did. <laughs> and these guys were in this furnace and they didn't even smell a moment of it. Didn't smell like it at all. Then Nebuchadnezzar says this. <laughs> He's a fascinating person, by the way. If you have a chance to study through Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be more stuff. We're not going to look about him and Daniel. We only have one more week, and Pastor Jimmy's going to share next week about uh, one more section in Daniel. But if you ever have a chance to look into Nebuchadnezzar, he's fascinating. Listen to him. He says, praise be to God for these men. He sent an angel, and he rescued his servants. And that's like exclamation. So he's like, whoa. They trusted him, and he defied the king's command. He's not even mad anymore. And they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I'm going to make a decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against god, the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut to pieces, and their houses will be turned into a pile of rubble, and no other god can save in this way. So seriously, he can't help it, right? He's having this god moment, and he's like, man, this god is amazing, and if you don't like it, I'm cutting you to pieces. And you're like, what's wrong with you? Well, where to start, right? What's, what's wrong? So here he has a God moment, and there's chopping to pieces following it. Nebuchadnezzar gives all the glory to God, but he doesn't recognize this great God personally yet. It's not his God. It's still the God of these faithful men. Now, if if you are interested a little bit later, maybe today, look look in Daniel, the next few chapters, and and look at some of Nebuchadnezzar's phrases and his prayers. We're not going to get it in a sermon. But I think that there's really good evidence that Nebuchadnezzar gets to this place where he says, it's now my God. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him in heaven, though he's a people chopper, whatever. Right? So God does know something. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar does know some things about God by watching these people. He knows that, that the God of these men saves. He knows that this God is the God of the Hebrews. He knows that this God has great power, that this God is worthy of being trusted. He knows that this God the people who follow him, they are all in. And he knows that this God demands the highest allegiance and no compromise to the worship of idols. These uh, Hebrew guys, they didn't ask Nebuchadnezzar to make that decree. And he probably wouldn't even want him to make that decree. Like coerced worship, it isn't good, whether to a false God or even the true right God. Some of that stuff that we saw in history through the, the Crusades where Christians would force people or the conquistadors force people to turn to God. God never wanted that. That is never the right thing. And Nebuchadnezzar complain, c- c- proclaims at the end here, there is no other God who can save in this way. You see, seeing God at work in the life of these men was an extremely effective testimony to Nebuchadnezzar, and I think that it translates exactly right now to our lives. People watching the way that you interact with the God of the universe, with your God who can save, they will recognize him, and it might open them up to this God. It may take a bunch of times, but they're watching you. We have to ask ourselves, are we going to stand for God, or are we going to bow down? Because you can't do both. What an encouragement and a challenge to stand up for God.
like no matter what. To decide in our hearts that we're not going to worship any idol in our lives, and it's not going to look like a statue, you guys. It's going to look like something else. That we will not bow before those things. Instead, that we'll stand up. So what do you say? Would we as a church be willing to stand up for God? Are we as a church willing to to say, God, I want to follow you. I want to take seriously the command of Jesus to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. Now, I don't think we can do it perfect right away, but are we willing to take that stand together and say, Jesus, we're going to follow you? We're going to close in song, and and would you literally right now be willing to stand up with me as we worship God? So I want to invite you to stand up as we're going to worship and pray. Now, you don't have to because it's not coerced worship, but... uh. Literally, I want to say to God that, that I want to stand for him. I know that in my life, there's an idol of comfort. I know that's true. God was speaking to me all week about it. I know that I told God I'd go anywhere in the world except to the Amazon jungle because I don't like bugs. <laughs> but I need to say, God, I will go anywhere in the world no matter what. And so would you join me in praying to God of the universe that we love him enough that we're willing to follow him anywhere, that we'll stand up for him, you will literally live for him and him alone. Would you join me in praying that? Whatever you need to pray, whatever's been holding back, whatever's become an idol in your life, tell God, search me, God, and know me and reveal it to me and I want to I give it over to you. And would you join me in just praying?